And right now, let's get you into the Jack Riccardi show with the one, the only Jack Riccardi. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Can you believe that? You know, my first thought, God forgive me, my first thought was that Blood and Honey sounds like a morning show, and you would be the (laughs) co-host. That's a fact. And I loved Christopher Robin as a kid, too. I, uh... So, the premise of this movie... I wrote my column about this today, so I was glad you had it in the news. Uh, The premise of this movie is that Christopher Robin blew off Winnie and Piglet and Eeyore to go to college. You know, just like the kid in Toy Story, right? He he grows up and he puts the toys in a box. But in Toy Story, that makes the toys sad, right? And wistful. Yeah. In Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, it's made Winnie and and, uh, uh, Piglet angry. Yeah. And and vengeful, it's called neglect, and, Jack. And they go so so. Here's where I'm going with this. I I realized I have not paid any attention to Curious George in years, and now I'm afraid to even go in the room where those books are kept. You may have a kind of a Chucky thing coming up. You know, I'm worried. I mean, yeah. you know, he was he was last time I checked, he was all happy go lucky. You know, no matter what happened, he fell out of an airplane or whatever. He was always smiling. But now, curious George. Whew, well, I tell you what, I've a chip ne- on his shoulder. Man, I've neglected my Star Wars action figures for, mm-hmm. for twenty five years. Yeah. Darth could be really upset. Been nice now. knowing you. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's <laughs> right. a. So this is a real thing. Um, they've uh, they've made a, a horror movie, and I have you. Did you watch the trailer? You know, I have not seen it yet. It oh. sounded freaky. I'll check it out. I'll be ready next hour. Let me let me <laughs> let me give you the short version. You won't want to put honey on anything ever again. Is that if you right? Watch this trailer. Yeah, it's honey features prominently. So anyway, it's a real thing. It's coming soon to a theater near you. Um, well, um, I saw a story that said that marijuana use was at a new high, but a bing, and that, and the way they reported it, or the way this particular article framed it, was for the first time. So marijuana use is going up and going up, but now for the first time, more Americans are smoking marijuana than smoking tobacco cigarettes. That's what they said. This is a Gallup poll. And uh, was like 16% of Americans smoked marijuana in the last week. And 11% of Americans smoked tobacco cigarettes in the last week. I, I find that hard to believe, but I, I mean, I haven't made a study. I don't know. Um, and so a lot of people look at the marijuana story as kind of a, hey, it's good that we've decriminalized it and um, it's available and it's, uh, you know, it's live and let live. You should people like you, Jack, should be happy about this because it's you know it's freedom, and and I, I guess it is in that sense. I'm not in favor of a war on drugs, but um, I don't know. Is there another way to look at this? Is it possible that if more people are turning to marijuana, they are turning away from the way they feel? I mean, are they are people? Are we living in times that are so? I mean, Winnie the Pooh is a horror movie, but seriously, I mean, you look at what's going on in the world. You look at the the division and the and the rancor and the nobody's getting anything done. And the politicians we have are the worst we've ever had in our lives. I, I mean, is, is this number 
a sign of desperation? Is this number like a sign of people saying, I can't deal? When I get home, when my work day is over, when I have free time, I want to I wanna check out. I want to numb myself or I want to drop out of circulation. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to feel what's going on around me. What do you think of that number? If that's true, that not only is marijuana use rising, but it's now eclipsed or surpassed cigarette smoking. And I, I mean, all my life, cigarette smoking was in decline. It, it's been in a long, long, long decline. And it seemed like most people felt that was a good thing. But now there's a new, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. So, uh, 210-599-5555. Um, they made a big deal today of the fact that um, the Department of Justice has this photo or these photos of uh, taken at Mar-a-Lago and it's a bunch of documents scattered on the floor in one of the rooms at Mar-a-Lago. In fact, Liz Cheney tweeted it out to show that Trump is a horrible person because, look, here are these sensitive documents, and they're just on the floor. But then when you read about it, as I understand it, this is a picture that the FBI agents took, and they actually explained they found these documents in a container. Remember they were telling us documents that were secret were commingled with documents that were not and were 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 not properly foldered by the way I didn't know foldered was a verb it it seems like the picture is what they staged it seems like they put the 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 documents on the on the floor like they spread them out so they could take a picture of them if they were all in file folders what do you have a picture of nothing you don't know what you're looking at but it's funny how people took that picture the way they wanted to take it. So some people saw that as, well, Trump's terrible. He's, he just doesn't care, and this stuff is all over the place. But if you read the whole thing, it appears that he's not the one to put them on the floor. I, by the way, I question how much he's even touching any of these documents. You know, who, who packed the boxes? Who looks at this stuff? Is it him? I don't think so. By the way, we're coming up on um, the anniversary of 9-11, a couple of weeks from now. And uh, remember the guy, Sam Harris, that we had on a while back, the, the podcaster and uh, author? He was the one that talked about, uh, Don, you remember we played this, right? He, he talked about how if the, if the media suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story, and he said, yeah, of course they did, but, but doing that was justified by the need to prevent Trump from being reelected or to prevent Biden from being defeated by Trump. That was that was Sam Harris's take and we talked about that. Well, he's back now um and he's thinking about Osama bin Laden because of the anniversary coming up. And he's now making the argument and this is this is somebody who I think has a terminal case of Trump derangement syndrome. He says that now that he's thought about it, Donald Trump is a much worse person than Osama bin Laden. You have to hear this because you have to know there are people among us thinking this way. Um, so here he is explaining why Osama bin Laden is a better person than Trump. Cut number seven. 
I think Osama bin Laden was a more or less normal human being, psychologically. He was just living in the grip of a dangerous and idiotic worldview. The moral structure he imagined he was living under and wanted to impose on the rest of the world, given his beliefs, was despicable. So he created immense harm, and it's very good that we killed him. But within the framework of his odious beliefs, he demonstrated many virtues. He was a man who certainly seemed to be capable of real self-sacrifice, and he was committed to ideals beyond his narrow self-interest. He was, by all accounts, personally quite courageous. I don't claim to know that much about him, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was generally a person of real integrity and generosity and compassion in his dealings with his fellow Muslims. Hmm. Well, it sounds like he wants to make out with them. So basically, Osama bin Laden just just had he just got uh, sidetracked by a by a bad ideology. It's like when you're dating someone and everything about them is is dreamy and perfect except one thing. If you could just overlook that one thing, says Osama bin Laden, really a great guy. You know, Sam Harris doesn't know him but wishes he had. On the other hand, Trump is worse than Osama bin Laden. Cut number eight. The seeming paradox is that if Trump were a better person, he would be worse in many ways. If he were brave and self-sacrificing and idealistic, if he were capable of being strongly committed to something beyond his narrow self-interest, he would be capable of creating much greater harm in the world. But he's not. He is a child in a man's body. He lies as freely as he breathes and just as compulsively. He can't even put the interests of his children above his own, much less commit himself to any ideal that requires real self-sacrifice. Unlike bin Laden, it is patently obvious that Trump isn't psychologically normal. He mm. really is missing something that almost mm -hmm. every other person on Earth has. He is I'm, I'm missing something here. Um, <laughs> what is the point of this comparison? Uh, how, how are these two people comparable? Why would you even think of them in the same way? Who does this with their political bet noirs i mean take 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 whoever you think has the worst politics or the worst ideas or with whom you have the most disagreement i don't know somebody in politics maybe a commentator maybe somebody in the media but you're not saying when i think of them i think of osama bin laden or i i compare them to osama bin laden a person that makes that comparison is a person that's missing something psychologically, in my opinion. So, basically, he's saying Trump is worse, but thank God he's worse, because if he'd been as good a person as Osama bin Laden, then, then the age of Trump would have been even darker and worse, and we'd be in even worse shape than we are. We're grateful, at least, for the fact that he's a child in a man's body. I cannot, for the life of me, understand why you would go there. I mean, say what you want about people. I do. Express your opinions. A little hyperbole is, is sometimes good to make a point. 
But this is somebody with a totally broken um, spirit that you've gone there. And, and here's the funny thing about people that call Trump fascist and now, I guess, bin Laden. We used to say worse than Hitler, now worse than bin Laden. The, the, the funny part, the sad and funny part is someday there will be somebody they want to say something even stronger about, but they will have already used up their ammo. They'll have already used up the comparisons. I mean, how many more people can be worse than Hitler? How many more people can be worse than bin Laden? They use their hyperbole like they're never going to need it again. That's not how life works. There's always something. It, it can always get worse, or your disagreement with someone can always get deeper. There was a, an old joke that used to be told about, I mean, if you can imagine the joke about the Lincoln assassination, but the line was, how did you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln? And it was a way of saying, uh, it was a way of, of illustrating how somebody could miss the point or you know, miss the forest for the trees. How did you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln? I feel like Sam Harris is having a Mrs. Lincoln moment. So Osama bin Laden is a much better dude than Donald Trump. Well, not anymore because he's dead, but Osama bin Laden is somebody who we should hold in higher esteem than Donald Trump because except for the terrorist slaughtering innocence part, he has integrity and stuff. I mean, how, how do you get like this? Trump has broken their brains. I mean, he's not a dumb guy, but that's an that's an insane take. And even if you were trying to make the point that you thought Trump was was terrible, awful, no good, it, it weakens the argument to say, well, in fact, Bin Laden had more integrity. Thomas is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Thomas, good afternoon. Welcome to our show. What do you think about all this? Good afternoon, Jack. Um, I just wanted to make this point. First, Sam Harris's brain has been broken. As an intellectual, and as, uh, me being a philosophy, listening to an intellectual um, make the arguments that he makes, I think he's consistently been flawed. And so this is just another way for him to get attention. He decided to go um, the Islam route and make his argument about that, and it got a lot of controversy. He got a lot of attention. The rest of his arguments are weak. He basically borrows from other philosophers and then makes very weak that quickly fall apart, and he became irrelevant. So how do you become relevant again? You start mm. talking trash about Trump, and then the people mm. on the left want to hear you. You rile up the people on the right, and all of a sudden we're talking about a guy who really – in the great minds that we've studied throughout history, he is a very small speck and is very meaningless. So he's just trying to be relevant again, yeah. my take. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think you make some good points. Um, I, I don't, I didn't play it to focus so much on Sam Harris. I just think it's interesting yeah. that that Trump, um, and, and I guess really any anybody that is disruptive. Um, one of the ways you can measure how disruptive a disruptor is is by how unhinged and sort of, um, I don't know, out of control the criticism becomes. So you, you're, you're definitely a disruptor of something when people are spluttering and flailing to uh, express their, their outrage. I mean, this is just... This is just 
an unbelievable. I mean, in two weeks, give or take, we're going to mark the anniversary of thousands of people dying a fiery, frightening, um, barbaric death. And by the way, the death toll was extremely disappointing to the architects of 9-11. They thought those buildings would collapse into each other and onto other buildings, and there would be much more death and destruction. They thought there would be more people in the Twin Towers. They had planned to hit either the Capitol or the White House, which would have been not only a higher death count, but also a much deeper wound on the nation. And, you know, to be reaching for that to illustrate how perturbed you are by a guy that was president for four years is is something to behold. It's not just him. Sam Harris has, as as uh, as you just pointed out, Sam Harris has the ability to command an audience. He is well-spoken. But there's a lot of people who, if they could say it, if they had the, the words, would also say this. He, he really, they have, there's no low, there's no exaggeration for them. And that's disruptive. That's, dis, that's the mark of a disruptor. And that's what Trump did. Trump didn't order the slaughter of innocents. Trump disrupted comfortable people. And their discomfort, they equate to mass murder, only it's, it's worse. Would Sam Harris rather be dead? Would he rather be dead in the wreckage of the World Trade Center than having lived through four years of Trump? Is that, is that what he's saying? I mean, think about that, right? So bin Laden's a better dude, um, except for his iffy ideology. He probably doesn't use the right pronouns, you know. So what you're saying, I guess, is um, somebody who disrupted your norms and your um, comfort is worse than somebody who mass murdered people. What you're telling me is how important it is for you to be comfortable. Whatever else happens in the world, you need to be comfortable. And that kind of sums up our elites right now. We've talked a lot lately about the green energy thing. If you could generalize about all the different things, whether it's carbon emissions, electric cars, you know, uh, taking uh, coal and, and natural gas and nuclear plants offline and having rolling blackouts all across Europe and now in California and probably soon in many parts of this country, these people do, would rather you were cold, hungry, in the dark, maybe dead, as long as they feel good about their beliefs. So that's what he epitomizes. That's what he represents. Disrupting their comfort is the ultimate crime. Not, not anything, murder, nothing, nothing is worse than disrupting them. How dare you? It, it, it's being said so often now, it's becoming kind of cliched, this phrase or term, the soul of the nation. Um, remember when um, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock and one of the things he yelled at him was, I, I don't want my, my wife's name in your mouth. Remember that? 
Okay, I don't want the term or the phrase the soul of the nation in Joe Biden's mouth. Okay, I, I don't even want politicians in the soul business. Okay, um, I, I don't. If you're if you're waiting for any politician to guard, protect, restore your soul, man, you are so far off the path, you can't even see the path. This is an obscenity that politicians are talking about the soul. Politicians who've driven faith from the public square. Politicians that have mocked and ridiculed people who actually have serious thoughts and concerns about their soul and maybe the souls of their children. The soul of the nation. Would that be the nation that is trying to make abortion legal through the ninth month and and whose leaders are saying it's sinful to oppose abortion? The soul of that nation? Yeah. So, while we're talking about bin Laden comparisons, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to compare Joe Biden to Osama bin Laden. I think I can do better than that. But, it's pretty rich that the guy that's going to address the soul of the nation is the guy who doesn't just lie about big stuff. He even tells lies about things that you don't have to lie about. He, um, I mean, it's one thing when a politician says, I promise if elected I'll do X, and then they don't do it. You you could say that's a lie, but maybe it wasn't at the time he said it, because maybe he thought he was going to do it, right? It's only a lie later when you didn't deliver. This guy doesn't even tell those kinds of lies. This guy tells lies for which there's no apparent need or requirement to lie. When Bill Clinton lied about sex, people said, well, you know, um, come on, it was embarrassing. He was, he was humiliated. Okay, so... Why does Joe Biden tell stories like, for example, this one, cut number four? And one of those old Victorian two, three-story apartment buildings. And going up to see a woman whose name, oh, she's passed away, but won't mention her name now. And stand in that rotunda, that, that part that stuck out around the building. And she'd say, Joey, I know. I know what's going on. They all plan it downstairs. I can hear them, but I'm afraid to tell anybody. I'm afraid to tell anybody. The gangs. And so I got her so that I got a phone number for the local cops. She'd call. They promised not to identify her because they knew there'd be retribution. And the crime rate began to drop for real, not a joke. You got to know people. Two ways you know he's lying of, of, of hundreds. <laughs> Um, when the other person in the story calls him Joey, um, and when he says, no joke, right? No joke, it's like his tell in a card game. I've just lied. No joke. I'm lying right now. No joke. Can't help it. You know they're not writing no joke on the teleprompter, right? So that was a story about how he lowered crime by giving a lady the phone number to the police department. That's, that's the story. She would never have known the phone number to the police department. She would never have known that you can call the police had it not been for Joey on the rotunda. 
This is the guy who talk, talks about being the only wife, white lifeguard at a black swimming pool with corn pop, the bad dude who ran the bad boys. This is the guy who claimed he was arrested on behalf of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, and that story's taken many different forms. It's the story of a guy who claims that he went into combat in Iraq because he was looking for a soldier to pin a silver star on. And when his Secret Service told him he couldn't go, he said, no, it's all right, we can lose a vice president, but we can't lose many more of these boys. These are fantastic stories, as in fantasy, as in didn't happen. You know, if you had an uncle like this, you'd indulge him. You'd say, well, you know, every Thanksgiving after pie, we're going to have to hear some stories. But no. These um, stories are insulting to people that have actually done the things he claims to have done, like being admitted to the Naval Academy or attending a historically black university or getting multiple degrees all at once, or finishing in the top of his law class at Syracuse, none of which he did. Not one of those things are true. But he's going to guide us toward the salvation of the soul of the country? And I could almost see it if, despite all that, if despite having lived a life of craven political and we, if, if right now at least, if, if, the, if the right now Joe Biden was having some sort of realization that, oh my gosh, this country is in, bad, is in a bad way, and somebody's got to take them by the shoulders and tell them what matters, and what matters is not red and blue, and what matters is not uh, which channel you watch, but he, he's not doing any of that, and there's no indication. I mean, people have been asking me, are you going to watch it? I hope you're going to watch it. I don't want to watch it, one guy said to me. I don't want to watch it. I hope you watch it and tell us about it on Friday. I mean, yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll have some highlights of it. But it, is anyone really expecting much from it? Are you? 210-599-5555. In a moment like this, it would be great if we had someone who had some definite ideas. And, and, and even if they weren't all the right ideas, you would think that in a moment like this we would have somebody with some definite ideas. You know, we need to do A, B, and C, and here's why. But if you look at Joe Biden's history, he's a plagiarist. When he has ideas, they're other people's ideas. He's a storyteller. He makes up stuff that never happened. By the way, he does it more recklessly than I've ever seen anyone in public life do it because he knows that they won't call him out on it. They used to. Back in the 80s, it was routinely embarrassed and humiliated on national newscasts. They would they would play clips of him saying things, and then they would come on, the reporter would come on and go, none of that happened, no comment from his campaign, but none of what he just said is true. I saw that many times. He knows now they won't do that. They won't do it because Sam Harris has told them that what's more important than anything, more important than truth, is stopping this Trump guy. He's ruining everything. So, at least if we had somebody with ideas, you could say, well, you know, we've produced a thinker, we've produced an innovator, we've, we're going to 
We're going to try to innovate our way out of this abyss that we've fallen into. But no, even the things he's doing are all other people's ideas. The Green New Deal, Build Back Better, the infrastructure, these are all, these are all radical leftist ideas. He made a deal with them that if they let him be president, he'd put this stuff forward. He'd, he'd govern on their policies, and that's what he's doing. That's part of the reason he stumbles and mumbles over a lot of this stuff. I'm not excusing other factors, but when you have to sell things that are not your beliefs that you don't really understand, that you've maybe just recently heard about for the first time, you're probably not going to be super clear and crisp in presenting them. And he's not. So, soul of the nation. Let's, let's hope it doesn't depend on whatever is said in Philadelphia tomorrow night. Join now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line by the editor of ForeignDeskNews.com, Lisa Daftari. Lisa, good afternoon. Good afternoon. We were just, this wasn't actually, I'm going to start with this, this wasn't one of the things I had planned to ask you about, but we were just, we we're just playing clips of that uh, that guy Sam Harris, the podcaster, who his his new hot take as we approach the nine eleven anniversary uh, is that Donald Trump is a worse person than Osama bin Laden because Osama bin Laden believed in stuff and had integrity, and Donald Trump doesn't believe in anything and has none. So if you just overlook the slaughter of innocents, the unleashing of global terrorism. Clearly, one guy is better than the other. I'm speechless at this, <laughs> um, and that takes a lot for me to be speechless. This is—it's absolutely asinine for anyone uh, to look at the current situation, to look at the current administration, to look at the current state of global and national affairs, and to make such a statement. You know, uh, Donald Trump is not a politician. He didn't run. Uh, in order to become richer, he didn't use any of the perks, so to speak, of the, of being the president um, financially in terms of luxury, in terms of anything. It was all, um, you know, minimal compared to what he could afford himself and the lifestyle that he could afford himself and what he could spend his days doing other than running our country. Um, but, you know, there's no reason to defend Donald Trump. The point being, this is dangerous rhetoric. It's dangerous rhetoric when you are willing to exonerate a murderer, um, uh, you know, someone who has uh, American blood on his hands to the, you know, the, the ultimate degree, uh, and then to compare him to, uh, you know, a, a president of the United States. So um, I think a lot of distraction to happen by defending Donald Trump or, you know, kind of, um, trying to to uh, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, it's not the right. It's, it, talking about Trump is not not the right discussion not at this moment. Right. No. But um, I, you know, if if we're going to keep marking, and I hope we are, the anniversary of nine eleven, um, it, it's probably not a good idea to start evolving it into a well. Bin Laden was just a really intense guy who got a few things mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah, you know, I hope I'm really wrong. I hope I'm so, so wrong. But many experts are pointing to the fact, I'm talking about generals who actually have um, good good intel on what's going on on the ground, talk about how there will be another 9-11 and it won't be that far off. 
And that's because what we're looking at on the ground in terms of what we left behind in Afghanistan only 365 days out. Um, it looks like a more sophisticated and more unified in terms of the different terrorist groups, ISIS-K, uh, as well as Al-Qaeda, as well as the Taliban, working together, getting funding perhaps also from the Iran regime, which we may in any day now release um, billions of dollars to in, in order to go back on their terror shopping spree. This is, you know, connect all these dots. We don't have that much time to do that, but I can give you the summary of it is that we, in, in one year, we are worse off than we were 20 years ago when we went into Afghanistan, and that's a, that's a lot. And when you have individuals like this who have platforms and go off spewing nonsense and, again, you know, letting terrorists off the hook and saying, well, it wasn't that bad, well, let them show you what bad is. You know, you're tempting fate here, and you know that it will mm. happen because they are they are hell-bent on yep. doing it. We are their enemy, but we are, are wishy-washy here in the United States. I saw where, um, I think I'm saying this right, Russia is now exporting more oil and natural gas than it did in 2019. What happened mm-hmm. to the, we were going to, you know, drive them to their knees with these sanctions? Right, so much for sanctions. Well, this administration uh, doesn't really believe in sanctions because they took the ones off of Iran and they're about to take them fully off of Iran. And the ones on Russia, well, it looks like they were either watered down or not effective enough because Russia did find the loophole uh, in order to now, uh, as you said, export more oil than it did. They're better off now when we're trying to, quote-unquote, punish them than they were uh, prior to the invasion of Ukraine. And that really says a lot. It also says a lot about you know the, the the money and resources that we're putting into Ukraine. What are we doing exactly? So if we're not here to punish Russia and we're putting billions and billions of dollars into Ukraine, I mean, it looks like it's it's all a facade, doesn't it? Uh, you know, it doesn't look like this administration has a clear cut goal as to what they want out of this uh, conflict, mm. and they're paying good taxpayer money to do what exactly? I'm not I'm not in any way condoning the invasion or condemning Ukrainians when I say this, but I'm having a hard time understanding or figuring out what to believe about the fighting over there because I asked somebody this yesterday. If if our country has given billions in aid to Ukraine, and by the way, both Republicans and Democrats are on board with that, then aren't they going to spin the news as, oh, the Ukrainians are doing great and they're turning the tide? I mean, they have to say that, right? Well, they're not, they're not even saying that, really. I mean, look, the fact that this is drawn out to the, to, to the extent that it has been drawn out just tells us that they're not doing that well, right? And second of all, I mean, every other day we'll see headlines, um, by the wire services. And I say wire services because that's, that's, that's the, the, the narrative that's going to influence most, um, news outlets. So we're looking at AP and Reuters and AFP. They are reporting on the, uh, victories of, of the Russian military. So, if that's the case, then yes, we're not hearing, you know, a, a clear cut, um, you know, start to finish as Russia goes in and they wipe Ukraine out, which we would have assumed would be the case. But we're not, we're also not hearing that Ukraine is putting up a fight, besides for the character portrayals, which we heard many of them. And then they were beautiful. You know, the Ukrainian people are rolling up their sleeves and Zelensky is amazing and he's staying back and he's not a coward. Well, he's also on the cover of Vogue magazine and he's also you know, condemning uh, the U.S. and Israel and everyone else for not giving him enough. <laughs> the billions and billions of dollars are not enough. So it's very difficult, as you said, to believe what's going on on the ground there because none of it really adds up. And I think that's really what what a lot of people have tuned out 
you know, we, we have obviously, we're, we're continuing our coverage at the foreign desk of, of Ukraine, but it's, these are our least read stories on our website daily because people yeah. are just tuning it out. It's not something that they're interested in because it's, it's been drawn out. It's been six months and we're not really seeing any sort of escalation or de-escalation right now. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if people make an effort and they can't figure out what the truth is, then folks that follow this casually aren't going to even... Aren't even going to do that, but right. foreigndesknews.com is the place to make that effort, and uh, it's a stop for me every day as we get the show ready. Foreigndesknews.com and Lisa Daftari. Lisa, thank you for the time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. It was almost two years ago that the Babylon Bee ran this headline: "State with no electricity orders everyone to drive cars that run on electricity." Mm-hmm. And it was a dig at California. And now they are actually that state. Isn't that funny how that works out? That's why when I, I, honest to God, when I heard the Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, I I was sure that was Babylon B or The, the Onion. I, 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 I thought it has to be satire. I, I thought it was too. And then I look closer on the wires that I look at. And I'm like, you know, this is news. It, it's not yeah. satire. Did you see the trailer yet? I saw the trailer, yeah. No, I posted I just, it. No, no, just, it's, okay. uh, it. You know what? Um, I don't even know if I'm encouraging people to watch the trailer. A little piece of you will die if you watch that trailer. <laughs> Here's my question right quick. What's the future going to be for the actors and actresses mm. that appear in this? Mm. Mm. Yeah, like someday they have kids and their kids ask them, why did you Well, I'm that? just wondering. Like, let's say, for example, and of course I'll probably be wrong. This will probably be a smashing success. But let's say mm. the movie bombs. Right. Are they going to be typecast as the people who actually mm. appear yeah. in, that, <laughs> in that movie? Although, I, I, not, not, to, not to go into the weeds, but it seems like you can't really, with horror movies, right, you can't really bomb. I mean, even when they're horrible, yeah. there's an audience for that. There That's are people right. that like bad horror movies. Yeah. So yeah. whether you make it well or make it poorly, you're going to make it. But, uh, yeah, no, I, jokingly, I was saying, uh, Curious George, our news director, Dennis Foley uh, already has a title. You ready? Curious George, now Furious George. I was so jealous because he told me that. And I, I wish just I said, thought of that. I sat here no. thinking the same thing. I was like, God, why didn't I get that? I have all day to think of something witty to say at 4 o'clock. Yeah. I didn't come up with that. So anyway. You failed. Uh, it's not going to be the first time uh, this week. All right, 210-599-5555. Yeah, the... Um, so speaking of movies, when we played the clip of um, Don, play the clip again of of uh, President Biden's story about giving giving an old lady the phone number to the police department. Listen to this. And one of it's those old report. Victorian two three story apartment buildings, and going up to see a woman whose name out she's passed away, but won't mention her name now, and stand in that rotunda that that part is stuck out around the building, and she say, Joey. I know. I know what's going on. They all plan it downstairs. I can hear them. But I'm afraid to tell anybody. I'm afraid to tell anybody. The gangs. And so I got her so that I got a phone number for the local cops. She called. They promised not to identify her because they knew there would be retribution. And the crime rate began to drop for real, not a joke. you got to know people. Wait, wait. You can... You can report crime to the police? When did that start? 
All I can think of with his uh, little side forays during these speeches is that scene from, remember the scene from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where Steve Martin has just had it with John Candy. They've been in the airport and the plane, and now they're stuck in the one hotel room. They have to share the hotel room. And um, Steve Martin is, of course, very brittle and thin-skinned anyway, but he's just he, he reaches the point where he can't take one more John Candy-ism. Listen to this. You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. You choose things that are, that are funny or, or mildly amusing or interesting. You're a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. Honey, I'd, li- I'd like you to meet Del Griffith. He's got some amusing anecdotes for you. Oh, here's a gun so you can blow your brains out. You'll thank me for it. <sighs> I-, I-, I could tolerate any, any insurance seminar. For days, I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. And I'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. You know what they'd say? They'd say, I know what you mean. The shower curtain ring guy. It's it's like going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll. I expect you to have a little string on your chest, you know, that I pull out and have to snap back. Except I wouldn't pull it out and snap it back. You would. By the way, you know, when you're, when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Mm. I'm going to hear that in my head now every time Biden tells one of his stories, one of his Joey stories. No joke. No joke. 210-599-5555. Um, and they really think they have hit upon something with this ultra-maga and MAGA Republican terminology. So when they're not calling us semi-fascists, they're uh, calling us MAGA and ultra-MAGA. So I asked on the JR poll today, because I want to see how people answer this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this in regards to yourself. And, and, and I can't give you any, like, I, I don't know the exact definitions. You'll have to make up the definition. But uh, do you consider yourself ultra-MAGA, MAGA, or not MAGA? And that's the poll question today, 210-599-5555, or it's at KTSA.com. Um, I, I, in one sense, I, I get that what they're doing here is um, we live in a short attention span society, so politics is going to mostly be like quick strikes and zingers and things that fit on TikTok. But at, at the same time... Um, they may be missing um, a bigger point, you know. Like, if you force me to go by your terminology, um, I guess I'm MAGA. Because I don't know ultra. I don't know what ultra MAGA is. Is that like worship of Trump or what? What I don't know what that is. I, I tell people I'm I'm a half MAGA on my father's side. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but you, how would you how would you respond to those labels that they are hope, hopefully or helpfully I should say uh, uh, churning out by uh, President Unity, by President Soul of the Nation, um, and 
if people are mad and people feel the country's going in the wrong direction and they're uh, suspicious of elites and, and, and big government, um, it, it seems like the more you talk this way, the more angry you make the people that are already angry, but you don't do anything to like bring them over to your side. So it's like it's like Biden has just given up on any new voters, and he's just saying stuff that will be pleasing to the voters he already has. Sort of sad that there's no effort there to convert or persuade. Like, hey, if you didn't vote for me last time, I'm going to give you a reason to vote for me this time. Nope. And I predict if you make people choose this way, you will not like the way they choose. But maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. Mayor of Austin the other day made an astonishing claim. He promised that his city would be the first in America to end homelessness. Our next guest says they're not ending it, they're moving it. And he knows a lot about it because he's been homeless in Austin. And now he's studying and mapping uh, the the issue, the challenge of homelessness, the camps and so forth. Jamie Hammonds is on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Thank you for coming on, and good afternoon to you. Hey, how are you doing? So you say that politicians, and this is a, this is something they do with a lot of issues, right? You say politicians uh, are basically hiding or moving the problem rather than solving it. Yeah, well, back when uh, Prop B passed uh, and they they reinstated the camping ban here, um, a lot of the homeless were, you know, actually on the street corners, on the sidewalks. Um, They were very visible. And uh, they basically came in and and taken those camps away. You know, they've uh, shut them down, uh, moved people to shelters. Uh, but most of those people have moved back out, and they're in our green belts. Um, they're in the wooded areas. Um, you know, I've talked to people uh, in neighborhoods where they didn't have any idea that there was a, a pretty massive homeless camp 100 yards, you know, from their neighborhood. Uh, they're just all over Austin. Basically, any of the wood areas, any of the green belts, it's, they're, they're all over. And when you move them deeper into the green belts or green areas what's the what what problems does that then bring about so there's one in particular on williamson creek uh, the williamson creek green belt it's uh, right at 35 and uh, stasney lane um that area it's it's a pretty rugged trail um and and they're pretty entrenched back up in there i mean it's it's about a good half mile hike back up that trail these folks are um, what we found. Um, they're actually, uh, you know, I guess, going out and stealing copper wire at night, and uh, uh, they're they're burning the uh, the coatings of the outside of the wire off of it. So they're setting these pretty massive fires in, inside the green belt. That's one of the big problems um, we find. You know, very large areas that's been burned. And obviously, right now, in you know South Central Texas, it's not a good time to be burning anything in a you know in a wooded area. Right. So uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, there's a lot of folks in that area, and there's one way in and one way out. And you know, if that place ever catches on fire, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, it's going to be a pretty bad pretty bad time. 
Um, I've read that you you yourself were homeless for a short period of time. Can you can mm-hmm. you tell me about that? What happened and what was that like? I mean, you you were not probably typical of of or the face of this issue because people are homeless much longer. There's sometimes drugs involved. You didn't have that, but what happened with you? So I'm actually from the Dallas area um, originally. That's where all my family they're still up uh, in the Dallas area. And I came down here, I had gotten a divorce, and basically I kind of chose to be homeless. Um, and, you know, I came down here, uh, I actually slept, uh, there's a church right next to the Capitol, uh, met up with a group of guys that basically did the same thing that I did. We would sleep there and go pick up day work at, at the, the Home Depot down on Woodward and 35, and after about three or four months, saved up enough money to you know, uh, get a place, get a, uh, an apartment, and basically, you know, start it over. I uh, met my wife down here. At, um, we've been able to, uh, uh, thankfully, we've been able to adopt two children and uh, have a pretty decent life now. So I'm pretty thankful for all that. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. It, but it sounds like yes, you it, you sound, Jamie, like someone that never intended for that to be permanent. You you were going to get out of that. That's what it sounds like. Right. How, how is that different right. from the people you're studying and seeing uh, on the streets of Austin now? So I talk to a lot of these homeless folks that are that are living here. Um, you know, once uh, when we get into the encampment areas, uh, once they realize that I'm not there to you know turn them in or or you know hurt them anyway, they're more than willing to talk. A lot of them have been, so Austin has this housing first um, initiative uh, to where basically they've, uh, you know, bought these hotels and, you know, they're just, uh, they, they, they think that if they just give somebody a roof over their head, that that's taking care of the issue of solving homelessness. But these folks that I'm talking to, they've been in these shelters, they've been in these hotels, and it's not solving the underlying issues, whether it's substance abuse, you know, problems, uh, financial management issues. Um, they're not getting that kind of help. So they're getting, you know, a roof over their head, but they're getting, you know, they're, they're within a few months, they're right back out onto the street because, again, most of them have a substance abuse problem or alcohol, you know, drinking alcohol. And they're not getting help for that. And Austin has services in place to help people uh, with just those issues. But that's not where the money is being put. It's being put through the housing first, which, in my opinion, it should be put, you know, uh, it, at least split to where, um, you know, a lot of these homeless folks are getting uh, services and shelter at the same time instead of, you know, trying to spend the millions buying as many hotels as they can. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, it's no it's, coincidence, too, that every city in America that has a skyrocketing cost of living also has a lot of homeless people, and Austin is one of those cities. And it's growing. Um, you know, I talk to people. Um, I have a, a, met a guy just the other day. He's living in his, uh, he's living in his car. Uh, for that very reason, it got too expensive on him. Um, and now he's uh, running DoorDash and, and doing Uber um, and living out of his car. So, and, you know, and we're seeing a lot more of that down here. A lot, a lot of folks are... You know, it's just becoming too much for them. Yeah. So your your bottom line is, don't let the politicians cover or hide or move the problem and then tell you they've solved it. Yeah, it's it's not solved. I mean, I think you know anybody. So 
since, since I've been doing this and uh, it's been picking up some media coverage, a lot of folks, I've, I've had people ask me, can you, can you take me down these trails? Can you walk us into the green belts? A lot of folks are scared to go down into a homeless encampment. And so, you know, I'll, I've walked a lot of people down in there and they're surprised when they see just how many, you know, people are actually living in the woods. Uh, and, you know, it, it, you may not see it every day, but you're driving by it. Uh, uh, you know, when you're driving down 35 in South Austin, uh, there's a, uh, an area, you know, basically anywhere, Stassny, uh, South, uh, any wooded area down there is uh, full of encampments. Uh, they're just there everywhere. You just can't see them. Yeah. Well, I hope we can have you back. I'd love to talk more about this uh, if we can in the future. And I appreciate sure. you coming on with us uh, today and great information. Glad to hear you're doing better, Jamie. Thank you for coming on. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. All right. We'll talk to you again. Well, I, as you may know, I am uh, absolutely just crazy about college football. I, I love it. I get very, I get, I get emotional this time of year when these games start. I am. Uh, <laughs> I get a little misty. I just—it's a very short season. I look forward to it. It's really the only sport that I watch a lot of on television. I actually like arrange things around being able to see the games. Uh, the there were there were a few games. We had a little nibble of it last weekend, but it really from from tomorrow through. I think there's even a game on Monday, but from tomorrow basically through the weekend. College football is just going to be a, a feast. And tomorrow, one of the big games tomorrow is Penn State-Purdue, which is going to be an amazing game. But anyway, if you watch college football or you follow college football, then you probably watch or are aware of the kind of the flagship television program about college football. It's College Game Day. It's been on since the 1980s. Um, and if you think of ESPN like, um, you know, maybe uh, – a news network for sports, then College Game Day is like its, you know, signature program or its, you know, political convention coverage or election night coverage or whatever you want to call it. It's a big deal. Um, and they have a panel of people who are um, making predictions and analyzing the games, and they originate the, the show from different uh, college campuses where there's a key game that weekend. Um, and Lee Corso is a guy that's been on game day, I believe, since it started or very close to the beginning of it. Lee Corso was a long time ago a college football coach. So he, after leaving the ranks of coaching, he, he joined ESPN. He is still on game day at the age of 87. And Recently, especially this past weekend, there's been all this um, social media buzz about how Lee Corso sounds. And there are people saying they've got to get him off the air. They've got to take this guy off. This is atrocious. It's wrong. It's sad. It's cruel. Because he's 87, and he had a stroke about 10 or 15 years ago. And um, so this is this is a, a a a segment he does with Kirk Herbstreit, who's one of the main guys. Um, and take a listen to this. I'm going to play a little of it, and then we're going to stop it, and I'm going to make a point. Take a listen. Hey, Kirk, how are you this morning? 
What, uh-huh. what in the world is happening over there? At your we're, house? we're having a party, a Lake Berry party, and Lake Berry Heathrow. My neighborhood guys got together to uh, to uh, welcome in the football season, and they're all having a party right in my front yard. You got guys on stilts back there, referees back yeah, there. Yeah, referees. They got everything. Patrick Abraham and his great crowd do a great job. They got everything there. It's good. Oh. Let the games begin. Let the games begin. begin I'm, yeah. in, I'm in Chicago uh, at a hotel. Uh, your buddy uh, Chase and St. X have a game in Chicago this weekend. Oh, so that, I, yeah. I wish I did. Hey, I heard you on SportsCenter talking about Alabama, how great they were. Singing their praises, huh? You're yeah. an Alabama guy, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I think, think I, I think Alabama. Well, every year Alabama's great, right? But I think history shows that when they don't win it the year before, they come back the next year ready to go. Not so fast, my friend. Not so fast. I, I'm going to tell you the winner in the show of the national championship, and it ain't the SEC. Well, I'm saying this: I have them in the national championship. Yeah, winning. I have them losing in the national All championship. Right. Now, last year, okay. no pressure. All right, so let me let me pause it here. So, Kirk Herbstreet um, is talking to Lee Corso, who's at his home. He's not; they're on out all together uh, for some reason. Normally, they would all be at a like a horseshoe shaped desk together, all the panelists. So, people, this this went viral, and I'm watching college football on Saturday, and I hadn't watched game day because I was busy in the morning. And people are making all these comments. This is so depressing to watch. Um, it's very sad that ESPN is putting uh, putting him on. They need to take him off. Uh, why don't they? You know, why don't they uh, put him out of his misery? And um, so I went and watched this, and it's it's um, it's a struggle. I mean, Lee Corso is is a guy who um, actually has to write down everything that he is going to say because the stroke affected his ability to ad lib. Now, I have a different view of this, and I'm going to admit right up front, my, my mom is about the same age as Lee Corso, and I talk to her every day on the phone. And my mom is having a lot of difficulty. I don't talk about this very much, but just so you know, she's she's 87 and she's going through a lot of things health-wise that, that kind of come with being 87, like Lee Corso is. It is a very different thing to talk to her now than it was just a few years ago. And when I watch Kirk Herbstreet patiently, respectfully engage Lee Corso, a guy that knows more about college football than probably most of us, I see something beautiful. I don't see something that should be ended. Do we not have room on a 500-channel universe for old people? Do we not have room? What what happened to inclusion? I, I thought that was a beautiful thing. I thought we were supposed to be all about that. So I guess I should not, and you should not, bother with elderly people in our lives that maybe have aphasia or dementia or have had a stroke. I mean, just 
you know, wouldn't it be just better to not talk to them? Just forget about them. I, I would, and I, I'm not, I'm not attacking the people that wrote these comments, but I feel sorry for them because someday they'll be that age. And I hope there's somebody like Kirk Herbstreet in their life that has the patience and the respect to listen. And I, I, I've always liked Kirk, but my respect for him has gone up in recent years because he's sort of the, they, they sort of put him and Lee Corso together and they kind of, it's, I mean, it's almost like watching a man and his son, you know, it's, there's a lot of affection there, there's a lot of respect there, but there's also a lot of patience and Herb Street will sort of help him find the word or clarify the issue. I get that the segments might go faster or maybe it would be more visually pleasing to have four or five young-looking, good-looking young guys at the desk, but um, I hope there's always room for Lee Corso as long as he's able to do it and wants to do it. Um, And if we don't have room for him on game day, then it seems like we really don't have room for old people. And as somebody that's getting old, that's, that's kind of a sad thing to contemplate. But I, I guess, again, I really wonder about what we're doing here. Like, are, are we looking at him and thinking, I don't want to hear this? Are we looking at him and saying, I'm afraid that that'll someday be me? Maybe that's it. Uh, are we saying that we just want people who are glib and can say things quickly, and even if it's not very meaningful? By the way, there's an interesting sidelight to this, which is that if you watch sports on television, there's a lot of former athletes, right? I mean, the, the most of it is former athletes. And i got to be honest, a lot of them who are a lot younger than Lee Corso also aren't making a lot of sense. A lot of them are word salad. But you endure it, right? You, you, you sift through it. You listen through it. Because you figure, well, this guy once played on a national championship team, or this guy was a quarterback in the NFL, or this guy was a, you know, a defensive end, uh, and is in the Hall of Fame, or whatever. And so you think, even though it's not very well presented, I, I want to hear what he's saying, because I'm a sports fan, or I care about this game, or whatever it is. I think the same thing should apply to Lee Corso. He has just has different reasons for struggling with what he's saying. And I will go to your phone calls. I just want to make one more quick point about this. While people react to it in terms of it's hard to watch, imagine how hard it is to be Lee Corso. I know a little something about ad-libbing. And I know what he must go through to prep just to be able to do what he's doing. In fact, I would venture to say it probably takes more work to be him than it takes to be a younger guy who probably can, with just a few notes and checking a few stats, probably could ad-lib his way through a whole show. To do what he's doing uh, is probably an incredible feat. Maybe we should look at it that way. Okay, it's rough. It's sometimes a little hard to understand. The sentences don't make sense. He says stuff that isn't quite accurate. But we're watching somebody valiantly trying. I mean, there ought to be at least room to admire that. And there before the grace of God, go you or me. College football season is underway, and over the weekend, one of the top trending topics was not 
the Northwestern, uh, you know, upset in Ireland or the fact that the season is back or some of the other storylines from the games and the schools involved, the, the big, the big discussions seem to be what's up with Lee Corso on college game day on ESPN. He was doing his segment remotely. And here's another piece of that with, uh, working with Kirk Herbstreet. What do you say? Hey, with that, that was last year, sweetheart. Yes. This year, yeah. Ohio State's going to win a national championship. Ohio State's going to beat Alabama in a national title game and win a championship. Good old Buckeyes. You and I have the exact, I feel good after last year. You were so good. You and I have the exact same game. Well, you and, have to pick Ohio State because you went there. I never pick Ohio State ever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, what are your thoughts about? People saying, oh, can we please get this guy off the television? This is so bad. He's so old. You can't, you can't, I can't stand to listen to this. He's, he can't get his words out. Um, wow. I hope your, uh, I hope your health is perfect. I hope you never have any setbacks. 210-599-5555. Lee is on KTSA. Lee, good evening. Hello, Jack. Uh, yeah, I think he sounds a lot better than the president. And I'm not saying it's a snide remark. I mean, seriously. And uh, he's not ahead of some country, so he screws up. It's not going to affect anything. Yeah. But how he's got together more than the president does. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Lee, because I wasn't even going to go there. But, um, I mean, it's kind of obvious if you're worried about a guy on a sports show, but you're not worried about the guy with the nuclear codes, maybe your priorities are a little screwed up, right? Yeah, I agree. I think so. Good grief. That's a good point, though. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mike is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hi, Mike. Hi, Jack. God bless you, Jack Riccardi. I love what you just said about Lee Corso and especially about the patience that Kirk Herbstreet has with him and the respect he shows him. I appreciate that so much. I've noticed the last year, Lee, I noticed his, his speech is a little slurred, but I, I knew that was why. One thing I'll mention to you, you may not know, your your listeners may not know, but he, uh, Kirk Herbstreit was on Paul Feinbaum's show yesterday, and he is, uh, he had some blood clots in his lungs here recently yes. that he yep. found. And, and in talking to Paul, he told him that Lee calls him every day checking on him. And just, just for what you said, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I admire Kurt Coverstreet for his behavior yeah. with Lee Corso. But I really admire you for your stance on that. Thank you. God bless you. Oh well, thank you, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. And yeah, I had, I, had, I had heard that. I'd heard that Kirk. Herb Street had, the, and, and in fact, there are some real concerns because he's going to be doing NFL and college games this year. And there are people saying, because I think he's got to deal with Amazon Plus too. And there are people saying, "Oh man, you know, this is this guy's going to be working too hard, and uh, it could affect his health." And blood clots happen when you fly a lot. Anyway, um, I guess my take on it is that these two gentlemen from very different generations seem to have a great deal of respect. Uh, and affection for each other. And it's a very unique thing in the world of sports television and radio, which there's not much of that in it. It's mostly all people that sound the same, <laughs> kind of say the same stuff, and I'm not putting them down, but 
rather than get rid of Lee Corso, I think I think people ought to look at the way Kirk Herbstreet interacts with him, and it's a model for how we need to be there for people in our lives, whether they're parents or grandparents or next door neighbors, uh, because we're surrounded by people who are aging and struggling, and we will be that person eventually as well. Uh, is it Davey or Dave? Hey, David. Thanks, Jack. David. Hi, David. Hey, just a real great story about, you know, your, your mom. And, uh, you know, I've got a mom up there to age. But you know what? Uh, it's great that you brought that up. Just real quick, Jack, that, uh, you know, it sounded to me like if, if he's 87 and he's up there in age, he, he could have been like a little tipsy, Jack. And if, if he was like a little tipsy, hey, more power to him. He's 87. You can still knock on some Cohen's. Maybe well, he, he had a stroke. He's not. He's not tipsy. He had. A, he had a stroke. He talked about it at the time. He missed some some work. Uh, he rehabbed. When he first had the stroke, he couldn't talk at all. Um, he he lost a lot of uh, functionality. In fact, I, I'm I'm sorry that you think he's tipsy, but you may not realize people that have had strokes may sound that way. It doesn't mean they are. It might be a good idea to ask first rather than assume that they're tipsy. Also, if I could just point that out. But anyway. Um, he had a stroke. He fought back from it. Uh, the man is financially well off. He is. He's done it all in the sports television world. I think he loves what he does. I think he loves college football. I can relate to that. I love it, too. It's an irrational love. It's irrational for me to care about these games as much as I do. It's irrational for Lee Corso to still be working. But he loves it. I love it. And we ought to see the the model of the patience and the respect. We need a lot more of it. We're all living longer. People are living longer. There's going to be a Lee Corso in your life, or you're going to be the Lee Corso in somebody's life. Uh, let's hope that there's a Kirk Herbstreit when that happens. So I'm wondering about this statistic. Uh, I saw it for the first time today. I don't know if it came out today, but it says that... Um, marijuana usage is now uh, higher, pardon the pun, than smoking tobacco, that more people now um, are using marijuana than smoking tobacco cigarettes. According to Gallup, this is the first time we've we, those lines have, have crossed. Does that sound right to you? Yep. It does? Yep. And because, I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because over many years, and I mean, I'll say it on the air, I used to be a smoker uh, cigarettes. And over many years of PSAs and and personal experience with many people, I think yep. the message got out right. that smoking tobacco is a bad deal. Now, on the other side, you've got medical marijuana. Keyword there mm-hmm. being medical. You've never mm-hmm. heard medical tobacco. Oh, but sure we did. Did used we? to have doctors recommended brands of cigarettes, and doctors yeah, used but, to say that it would expand your lung power. And it, oh, they they made all kinds of claims that it was healthy for you. That's why filter cigarettes came out. But this was a long time ago, no? Well, yeah, but I, I mean, you, you're right that we're not saying that now. But I'm just making the point that I'm wondering if history is repeating itself. Like, I wonder if in X number of years or decades we'll be looking back at quote-unquote medicinal marijuana and going, you know, that was exaggerated or picking a poke or, you know, that was said to sell the product rather than uh, with proven results. J- just as tobacco, a lot of claims were made about tobacco usage that turned out not to be true. 
Well, I think the the difference you have is I don't know of any, and I could be wrong, but I don't know of any true medical benefits that tobacco brings to the table. Oh, no. With, with no. cannabinoids, there is, but I don't know that smoking it is, is because smoking anything is not going to be healthy for the lungs. So you may be right. I just think I can see why the association is so different now. Yeah, I mean, I'm not taking a position. People should do whatever they want to do. But I, I mm-hmm. will, I will say it. It it makes me wonder. There was a time when, uh, at least maybe not the the entirety of science, but certainly people in the medical profession lent their name, their reputations to either certain brands or certain practices with tobacco. Whether they knew they were wrong or thought they were right, I don't know. I wasn't there. But um, now you, again, have a lot of... It seems like there's a lot of claims made about the medical benefits, and I'm not sure all of them have been... Maybe some of them are legit, but I'm not sure all of them have been proven. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I'm not either. There, There's uh, ways to go on it. I think and then, And then, as you point out, there's a huge difference between uh, a product that has, say, uh, the ingredients in it versus actually smoking a joint because, again, you're smoking. Right. Um, Here's one other thing. Now, tobacco usage had a long history of advertising, right? I mean, the Marlboro Man and Mm -hmm. Lucky Strikes and all that. I mean, so will there be that component to marketing marijuana? That's a great question, Jack, because now you've got hundreds of pharmaceutical medications that can mm-hmm. now advertise. I guess that's about right. 20, 25 years old. They they kick that door down. So I don't that that's a great question. I have not thought of that before. Will there be a Marlboro man of marijuana? I guess is the you know <laughs> that's a visual. So to speak. By the way, you know the I read a just recently read an interesting article about this. The way the Marlboro man came about was when filter cigarettes were being introduced before your time and my time when you know, that was a new, when those were a new thing. They were perceived by the public as being for women, and the tobacco companies wanted men to use them too. So, you so they cowboy. needed the yeah. most macho kind of packaging promotion they could find. And one of the ad executives had actually been down on a like a dude ranch or something, and he saw this guy uh, with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he just looked cool and masculine and you know like the ultimate dude and he thought that's how we have to sell filter cigarettes and that's what there's a big difference between the marlboro man and a pack of benson and hedges and you can clearly i never thought about this either there clearly is a demographic shift in marketing there yeah yeah because when i was a kid I i told the story the other day when i was a kid i worked at a at a little drugstore that sold cigarettes a lot of them it was the, probably the thing we sold the most of and i had never been around cigarettes i had never smoked them and i quickly learned because i had to pass these long boring hours of, of work in the counter i i started to study and notice who came in and which brands they asked for and pretty soon right just with my own anecdotal observation i realized there's like a newport kind of person and a paul mall kind of person and a winston kind of person and it was fascinating to me because i knew underneath all the wrap and the packaging and the advertising it was all the same stuff there's a cool type of person to do yes get it <laughs> yes in more ways than one yeah that's a fact so uh all right so anyway uh marijuana usage now um at a record high according to gallup and has surpassed 
uh, smoking tobacco cigarettes, 210-599-5555. I, um, yeah, I think it's, I think our experience with tobacco is probably something that should make us just all be, be hesitant, be cautious about drawing any conclusions because, uh, the history of tobacco usage in this country has been fascinating. The role that government played, the role that, that advertising agencies played. You know, it made several of the big advertising agencies. They made so much money. There was so much uh, spent on uh, these Don Draper-type guys, you know. Um, and, and so th- it, it, was, it was a product, and yes, people had a certain sensation from using it, but there's no separating, right, how smoking a cigarette makes you feel from all the things you've been told and all the imaging and all the, you know, I guess the illusion of it, right? And there's, there's not many products that have that much poured onto them, you know? I mean, everything gets advertised, everything gets marketed, but uh, cigarettes may be more than, than most consumer products. And now marijuana is that the, we're just at the very beginning of what they're going to do with that and how it's going to be uh, permitted and then eventually uh, promoted. But I do wonder, and I'm not saying this in a judgy way. Don't I'm not, you don't have to argue with me about your 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 marijuana. But I do wonder if the numbers are going up. Are they just going up because hey, it's legal and it's out in the open now, or are they also going up maybe because more people are seeking an escape? Because we know, for example, that over the last couple of years. Um, Alcohol usage has gone up, and alcoholism has gone up. You can't say, well, they're marketing it more, and they're marketing it no more or less than they ever did. We know, we're pretty sure we know that that was the effect of people's loneliness and isolation and maybe being out of work or being home more than they normally would be. And, you know, we've been through a kind of a depressing time. Maybe you didn't personally get depressed, but you know what I mean, right? I mean, if you weathered it well, you can still recognize that this has been a pretty depressing couple of years for a lot of people. I've told this story on the air. During the pandemic, as an introvert, um, I, I feel like I did not really su- personally suffer. But I knew people that were all of a sudden kind of kind of losing it because they were extroverts. And all the stuff that I didn't care about not doing or being able to do uh, really mattered to them. No joking, you know, seriously. I'm not making a, I'm not trying to make a joke about introversion here. They really were having a hard time with it. And, um, so maybe, maybe marijuana use is up in part, do you think? Because people are kind of losing hope or seeking an escape or, um, just wanting to not feel anything at a certain point. 210-599-5555. We can kick that around. Um, a lot of people talking about the Lee Corso thing. I'm, I'm happy to take your calls on that. Um, I jumped on the guy at the end of the hour a little bit because I, I don't know if he was trying to make a joke or what, but I, this is very personal for me. My dad had a stroke. My mom is, is struggling. Please don't think people that have had strokes are drunk. They wish they were drunk. Because <laughs> when you're drunk, you sober up. It goes away. Please don't make that assumption about people. There's a lot of people, they're not famous like Lee Corso is, or they're not on television, but they are trying to do their job. They are trying to function. They're trying to make phone calls. They are struggling to put sentences together. It takes a lot of work. 
when you can't just rattle it off off the top of your head. So let's let's be let's try to be good about that. Let's be nice about two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So um, we had a quote yesterday. I think we were talking about Elon Musk, who was speaking at a conference in Norway. By the way, Norway is now going to be the number one supplier of energy to Europe. It has just slipped into the number one. <laughs> this is an incredible world that we're living in. Um, but anyway, he was at this conference, and he, this is a man, this is the Tesla guy. I mean, this is a man who's in the electric car business up to his ears. But he doesn't sound like the politicians sound when they talk about electric cars. They're pushing electric cars. They're using every trick in the book. They're using every arrow in their quiver to persuade, coerce, cajole, herd you into electric cars. But literally at the same time, they are calling for you to turn off your thermostat, I mean, turn down your thermostats and turn off appliances. And um, California, which is in the news for mandating electric cars by 2035, is also telling people today in California, if you live there today, you got a notice on your phone saying, please don't charge your electric car tonight because we're having rolling blackouts. Well, what are we going to run it on? Positive thinking? And so Elon Musk said, we need oil and gas, or civilization will crumble. This is the guy, I mean, of all people, right, why would Elon Musk be saying that unless he really believes it? Because it's certainly not good for his business. He doesn't, he doesn't make gas-powered cars. He makes electric cars. And then I saw this. This was interesting. So Norway, which is now the number one supplier of energy to Europe, um, in Norway, it now costs about the same to fully charge a Tesla as it does to fill the tank of the average car. Costs about the same. About $100 in, in their money. So we hear all this talk about go to electric and you'll be whizzing past the gas stations, but you will have to pay to charge the car. They're, they're making it sound like you get the electricity for free. Like once you have an electric car, you don't have to pay to power it. I, I'm, I mean, I, I realize people know that, of course, if I plug in, I'm using electricity, I'm going to have a bill. But, I mean, they never talk about that part. And they certainly never talk about the supply issue. They are hurting you toward a means of transportation for which they know there is an inadequate supply of power. And that's why, for me, it's hard not to think that the real goal is not everybody in an electric car, but fewer people in cars. I'm not saying I hope for that. In fact, I personally think the car is the greatest factor in human freedom and thriving of the last 100 years. I mean, when you think about what the car has meant to society and upward mobility and people's ability to exercise their their freedoms and their liberties, when you think about the car's role in that, you can't overstate it. It's hugely important. If you were a politician who wanted more control over people, you would see the car as 
a problem for you. Not a freedom machine, but a, a an obstacle. It's the same way they feel about guns. They, they talk about it like they're afraid we'll hurt each other. What they're really afraid of is the power gun ownership gives us versus them. So if you see the, if you, if you, if you can see that sort of parallel, you can understand what they're doing here. It isn't that there will be an electric car in every driveway because there is no way there can be. It's that there will be fewer cars. And they're not hoping that people embrace them. They're making it so. I, I, I read that, um, in some countries, banks will no longer give you financing for a gas-powered vehicle. You know, when you go to your bank, hey, I want to buy a car, I want to get a loan. Okay, let's look. Let's do your paperwork and see what you qualify for, or see what what, what rate we can get you. Well, now some banks are saying nothing. We get we'll give you nothing if what you want to finance is a is a gas-powered vehicle or a diesel-powered vehicle. It would be one thing if they were saying to us, hey, here's a new technology, you ought to consider it. And we would. And people have. I mean, the electric cars that are on the road today are, by and large, cars that people have chosen, right? They, they, they did their homework and they figured out, I can make this work. Or I want this. This is force. This is um, people that can move at will, can work where they want, can live where they want, can relocate, can move from one state to another, and thus empower political movements and parties. Because when people can move, they can shift the politics of a country, and they have. So the more I've looked at this, the more I've thought about it, the more I see electric vehicles, not as something I disfavor, because I really don't. I'm a car buff. I'm interested in all kinds of cars. I really see this as a huge change in your life that you have had no say in, you've never voted on, you've never witnessed a, a major sort of ongoing public debate where lots of different people are weighing in with information and, and viewpoints. We're not collectively coming around to this. And that's probably why they're, they're trying to rush it. You know, if it plays out over too long a period of time, people might start to wake up and start asking, like, hey, we're, if you don't have enough electricity to keep the lights on, how is there going to be enough electricity to charge these cars, right? We don't want people thinking that way. We need to get this thing rolling fast. So by the time those problems arise, and it looks like they will, it'll be a fait accompli. And do you really believe, and I'm I'm not asking this rhetorically, do you really believe that the people pushing electric cars will also robustly build power plants, whether those are solar, wind, gas, nuclear, do, do you believe they will build enough of it to provide the infrastructure for what they are saying we need? If the answer is no or you're not sure, then you need to ask yourself, well, then why are they trying to get us out of cars that are relatively affordable, 
for which there is an infrastructure, for which there is plenty of, quote-unquote, fossil fuel, into something that looks like it'll be scarce and very controllable. I mean, do what you want and think what you want, I'm not, I, but I think those are good questions to wonder about. Thirty-eight on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSA. Coming up, we'll see how you voted on the uh, JR poll. Are you ultra mega mega or not? <laughs> really, kind of a stupid question, I know. But um, so if you are at all mega, then you may also be a fascist, a racist, or a terrorist. And it's funny how when the the memo goes out, everybody in the media jumps on it. Everybody starts saying the same thing. So even though um, President Biden has started calling Republicans those things, the media have been in on it for a long time. Cut number three. Listen to this. What do you mean by semi-fascism, sir? You know what I mean. And we have to start calling his supporters supporters racist as well. That MAGA uh, had that MAGA symbol has come to represent something. It is the new Nazi symbol. It is the new uh, hood. Because it's not a party, right? They're Sinn Fein to the IRA. They're they're the PLO to Hamas. They're a dime store front for a terrorist movement. The Republican Party is basically a domestic terrorist cell at this point, and they should be treated as such. There are elements of the GOP that are starting to look like the jihadists. Not a political party. They're a white nationalist movement. They're a fascist threat to our nation. That's not hyperbolic. That's academic. Would have once seemed hyperbolic, but it increasingly does feel like the Republican Party has become a death cult, and it's all about Donald Trump. There is no alternative right now because the Republican Party project today is a fascist authoritarian project. Fact is, Republicans in Congress are still in the grip of the ultra-MAGA agenda. Party of dupes, uh, party of knuckleheads, party of weirdos, party of freaks. So that, that, that is a simple, simple message. And on Underneath that, it's the party of nothing. It has become an authoritarian embracing cult. Uh, it is fascist. We take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, mm. foreign and domestic. And sadly, the domestic enemies to our voting system and wow. our honoring our Constitution uh, are right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with their allies in the Congress of the United States. So... You know, Victor Davis Hanson, we've had him on the show many times, he wrote a great piece at American Greatness about how if, I'm paraphrasing, but basically if Trump was a fascist, he might have been the worst fascist or done the worst job at being a fascist Victor Davis Hanson has ever seen. And this is a man who studied centuries of history. He says... And and let me just read you a little of this. What exactly did Trump do to make him such a menace? Did he illegally and with a mere signature nullify over $300 billion of contracted student loans in order to firm up his college student and college graduate base 
nine weeks before a midterm election? Did he follow the Obama model of weaponizing the IRS during a re-election year to go after his ideological enemies? Did he blatantly use the national security apparatus of the government to enhance his own re-election bid in 2020? Was he ever caught on a hot mic promising a Russian president he would try to ease Russian worries about Eastern European missile defense if only the Russians would give him some space during the 2012 campaign? Did Trump weaponize the FBI? Did he send it after journalists and former Obama officials who were attacking him and his family? Are there texts of Trump-era FBI agents talking about how to stop Biden? Did Trump order an FBI raid on the Obama or Clinton homes to recover or discover thousands of documents? Was Jake Sullivan's phone taken from him by the FBI at an airport? Are there former Trump loyalists who now, as anonymous officials in cabinet agencies or on the National Security Council, writing op-eds about their stealthy daily efforts to undermine Biden's executive orders or his foreign policy? And it goes on like this. Did Trump promote court packing? Did he dream of ways to get rid of the Electoral College? Did he um, order or ask the CIA and the FBI to infiltrate the campaign of Joe Biden? Hansen writes, The strange thing about Trump is he did not use extraordinary powers to investigate anyone unlawfully. He boasted, he railed, he screamed, he whined, he became at times crude and obnoxious, but he didn't use the government the way the Bidens, Obamas, and Clintons did. Hansen writes, In fact, of the last three presidents, Trump was either the most inept or indifferent or the most obstructed concerning any issue of using government agencies for his own partisan political advantages, or to neuter his enemies. If you're going to describe him as this menace and this fascist, then it seems like you should explain why he did not do, and and apparently didn't even try to do, all the things that a fascist would do. These are all things that if you were trying to subvert democracy, you would do. By the way, these are all things that are being done now by the president who tomorrow night is going to go to Philadelphia and present himself as the the guardian of America's soul. I mean, what does that even mean? Is he going to have a tent revival? Is he going to ask people to come down to the stage like Billy Graham and save their soul? What is the soul of a nation anyway? I mean, you have a soul, I have a soul. Does the nation have a soul? I mean, rhetorically, I get that, but coming from these people, it sounds like just words. They don't seem like they're very big on the idea of individual souls. They don't, for example, recognize that a child in the womb has one. In fact, they're sort of crudely dismissive of that idea. What, are you crazy? But there's a national soul they're saving. Mm, okay. So, 
Somebody much smarter than me once made the point that almost everything the American left complains about or points a finger at is something they're actually doing. And, and that may be oversimplifying it, maybe not all the time or maybe not everything, but, boy, a lot of the time that's true, a lot of the time. And what is the psychological term? I think that's projection, right, when you, when you uh, describe somebody else's flaws and you are actually admitting, confessing, tacitly agreeing, yours so I hate when he does X is often said by people who do X right anyway just a few thoughts on that who are the fascists who are the semi-fascists who are the ultra magas is ultra maga the highest can you go higher than ultra can you go ultra ultra or maxi ultra or (laughs) seems like there'd be a lot of gray like there shouldn't be just like two or three Varieties. There should be like a lot of degrees of it. Like when I was in, when we were kids, we took uh, karate lessons. And everybody thinks in karate that the black belt is the highest uh, achievement. But then there's all these degrees of black belt. And we got our black belts, my brother and I, and we thought, oh, well, this is it. Oh, no. Now you got to go for black belt second degree, black belt third degree. Fourth. And I mean, it, so ultra mega. I mean, it's got to be degrees, right? Who is there? Is there somebody that hands these things out? Can you get a certificate? Are you ultra mega, mega, or not? Forty-one percent say they are mega. Thirty-eight percent say they are ultra. Twenty percent say they are not. New JR poll tomorrow when we get started at four. Find us anytime at ktsa.com, and our show is available on demand. You can listen when you want, whole podcast, whole episode podcast available on the Jack Riccardi page at ktsa.com. So Mike is calling in about Ultra Mega, Mega. Uh, how, do you, how do you know, Mike? <laughs> I, I don't, and I was surprised by your poll results because I, I don't consider myself Mega, but I voted for Trump. Meaning that the numbers are so high. I mean, I like the idea of making America great again, but um, I heard you say one time, you know, somebody asked, do you like Trump? You like how he governed, and that's what I like. It's not about him personally, but I like what he did. Um, the, the the liberals and Democrats, or some of them, they're categorizing, like any Trump voter is extremist, all the things you mentioned in your last segment. And then they throw up these things like, it's not who we are, it's not our values. Well, they're not representing who I am and, and what I think my values are. This so-called yeah. party of unity uh, is, yeah. very, is far from it. And you mentioned a bunch of things that, that President, former President Trump had did. Another thing he did, they, they were saying, oh, he's going to start World War III. There were no wars under him. He brokered all mm-hmm. these peace deals. Right. Um, so I just, he's threatened the establishment. That's what he's done on both sides. And they're all about protecting what they've had for so long. And uh, I, I think really they're. Think I think they're very sure that if they can, if they can uh, knock him, they will knock the ideas or the reasons people had for voting for him. But as you just pointed yeah, out, way over. Th- those are two totally it. different things. Yeah, um, Jack. What was that article by Victor Davis Hanson? I, I love that guy. That, what, that it's, you it's an American greatness. 
Yeah, it's at American, American Greatness, Greatness, which I think is amgreatness.com, if I remember correctly. All right. Now, check you. that out. Uh, and, well, appreciate the program. and Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Um, one more thing before we go tonight. Um, this is the, I guess today is the 25th anniversary of the funeral of, uh, or either the funeral of or the passing of Princess Diana. And so um, I wanted to, um, I had a few things I was going to say about that, but Maybe I'll save them until tomorrow. I wanted to leave you tonight with the um, the performance Elton John gave because whatever you think of of Princess Diana, this was a very well performed, well sung, a beautifully put together song by Elton John. He reworked the lyrics to "Candle in the Wind." We'll leave you with that tonight here, and see you back tomorrow at four on KTSa. Goodbye, Rose. May you well grow in our hearts. You are the grace that placed yourselves where lives were torn apart. You called out to our country and you whispered to those in pain. Now you belong to heaven and the stars spell out your name. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever Loveliness we've lost Those empty days Without your smile This torch we'll always carry For our nation's golden child Even though we try the truth brings us to tears All our words cannot express The joy you brought us through the years And it seems to me You've lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset When the rain set in your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burn out long before Your legend ever will Place to sense where I